If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And when I read the news that longtime U.S. Senator Orrin Hatch had passed away at the age of 88, I thought of only one person. Eric Loomis, an associate professor of history at the University of Rhode Island, author of A History of America in Ten Strikes, and also the blogger at Lawyers, Guns, and Money, a prolific tweeter at, at Eric Loomis. Eric, I, I had to have you back. Welcome back. I'm going to tell our listeners why, but welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. It's, it's, we were just talking about, before we got on the air, we don't have to just do this. You're, you're a very interesting writer. Um, a history professor, and there's a lot we could talk about, but it just so happens that I've had you on the show upon the passing of sort of legendary figures in Republican politics. And I want to just set up this conversation for a minute. I thought of you because when Bob Dole died, you were maybe the one writer in America brave enough to say, look, I get the human impulse to cherry pick only the kindest words for the recently deceased, but we need to take a clear-eyed look at what the real legacy of Bob Dole was. Now, when we did that show, there were some listeners who let me know on social media that it made them uncomfortable. I get it. I mean, they included some Republicans who I like and respect and who I hope have moved past it since then. But look, the vast majority of reactions that I got to that show were overwhelmingly positive. It was actually one of our most popular episodes at the time. And I think the reason is that your article and our discussion opened up a window into the kind of disservice that we do ourselves when we do these kinds of hagiography, sunshine and light reminiscences about people who pass away. Because it's that last impression that we make, that that final appraisal that really sticks in our brain. Research proves this. I mean, if you look up the work of Daniel Kahneman, your last impression actually matters a lot more about how you feel about something and how you sort of integrate it into your understanding of the world than your first impression. The whole first impression thing is, is you know, the obsession we have with it is kind of nonsense. So my point is, when we leave ourselves with a distorted history of our politics, we make more mental errors, we repeat the same mistakes, we miss out on understanding some of the problems that continue to plague us. Revisionist history does us no favors, even if it comes from an understandable human impulse. And I say all of this, and I know I've just said a lot, because I'm sensitive to the idea that one should not speak ill of the dead. I hope my own obituary someday, long from now, is going to be glowing. I'm not looking to do a hit job here on Orrin Hatch. I don't think you are either. But reading your article which you published on the editorial board, which I also write for sometimes. I just found it eye-opening. I discovered all kinds of things that as a close observer of politics for 30 years, I'd forgotten or I'd never really truly processed. I thought about the evolution of the Republican Party a little differently than I did before I read it. And I thought that this discussion was really important to bring to our listeners. So with all of that said, let me just ask you to start out with, 
does what I just said resonate with you? Is that why you write these kind of let's set the record straight obituaries or, or do you have something else in mind? Well, that's certainly part of it. I mean, I, I think that there is a lot of, it's a lot of problems when we don't tell ourselves true stories um, about the past, um, whether that's the distant past uh, or it's the recent past. I mean, you just think about where we are as a country right now. And, you know, a, a lot of people just kind of want to lay that on the doorstep of Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell, or maybe they go back to Newt Gingrich. And all these people are very responsible for, for a lot of this. But, you know, there are any number of people who have created this world in which we live where democracy is in decline, where fascism is on the rise, where our, you know, institutions are starting to fail. And, you know, if you, you know, Orrin Hatch is one of those people. And, you know, if you follow his career, you learn a lot about sort of where the Republican Party came from and, and, and where, where it was headed. And, and so that's a piece of it. I mean, I think that there are, there are other reasons I write these too. I mean, one of them is that, you know, you have these kind of beltway Washington stories of, you know, these sort of <clears throat> centrist journalists who sort of love a, love a nice Republican daddy, right? And they always want to worship uh, your John McCain, your George H.W. Bushes, your Bob Doles. And Orrin Hatch is, you know, maybe a little bit less than that, but he's certainly part of that world as well, you know, because you could point to a few bipartisan things that he did over the years and kind of get the sense that here's this, you know, beloved, respected, yeah, conservative, but, you know, reasonable Republican. And it's like, no, that's not the case, right? And, and I think that there's, I think it's really important to get our heads around these histories of the last 50 years, if we're going to really be able to battle the, the, the kind of, you know, or fight the kind of battles that we're facing right now. I totally agree. And what really resonates for me out of what you just said is that you do read, and indeed, I did read a lot of these kind of glib Washington reporter appraisals, like you just described, that really do gloss over the, the nitty gritty that matters in all of this. And I think it kind of it's so easy to fall into what you might call the Viagra trap or the Parks and Rec trap, right? Orrin Hatch appears on Parks and Rec and it's like anyone who appears in a, in a comedy with Amy Poehler can't be bad, right? Anyone who becomes a pitch man for Viagra like Bob Dole did can't be bad, but it's, it's a lot more textured than that. So let me just jump off. You, you took us to the perfect place. Let me just jump off with this sort of one paragraph summary that appeared in Politico Playbook, which I read obsessively every day, on the day after Orrin Hatch died. They wrote, among the landmark legislation he helped champion were the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Children's Health Insurance Program, a law that created the generic drug industry, and one that slapped health warnings on cigarette packs in his later years in the Senate, Hatch lost much of his deal-making persona, becoming a strong backer of Donald Trump. Well, okay, so first of all, we are about to unpack a lot in that simple set of sentences there. The two sentences there, and, and you know, it, there's so much going on under the surface there. I love how they glommed together children's health insurance program with created the generic drug industry. Those are two very, very different things, as you really show in your article. But I have to say, it sounds pretty good when you read it that way. So let's just start off. Why can't we just roll with that? That, that sounds great. I like that. It's very comforting. 
Yeah, well, that would be nice if it was if it was very true. But, you know, first of all, it ignore all the incredibly negative things Warren Hatch did, right? I mean, if you believe in democracy, if you believe in a woman's right to choose, if you believe in gay rights or labor rights or any of the things that most liberals or people on the left believe in, Warren Hatch was absolutely horrible on those things, you know? And, you know, and, and Orrin Hatch also, yes, I mean, he was a co-sponsor of CHIP with Ted Kennedy. However, you have to look at this over a period of time, right? That that the politics of the, the 1990s that had space in the Republican Party for, you know, Bob Dole to be like a champion of the ADA, for Orrin Hatch to be a champion of CHIP, like those are gone. Right. And and Orrin Hatch, you know, he he sprinted to the right. And you see this in any number of ways to, you know, really make the kind of politics he may have engaged in the 90s impossible by the 2010s. And and and, and so, you know, yeah, you can list a couple of things, but it's just a completely out of context discussion of the man Orrin Hatch was. All right. We're and I let's bookmark the whole generic drug industry and, and health supplements industry because there, there's a lot there we're, we're gonna we're gonna get back to that let's let's start at the beginning because there was some really interesting context that you laid out in your article again it's on the editorial board people should check it out and subscribe to that to that newsletter if if you can so where where did orange orange hatch come out of so th- there's sort of a tradition of mountain west politics and even in conservative utah he defeated a Democratic senator, and he did it by tacking hard right and and leaning into what was to become the Reagan revolution. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Hatch is somewhat of an interesting character in that he grew up actually quite poor, although from kind of a really prominent Mormon family. And he was out in Pittsburgh and where this family had moved. And he, you know, he, he works in the steel industry and, you know, he, he camps out of something pretty poor. But, you know, he moves back to Utah you know, he becomes a lawyer. And 1976 is this uh, pretty weird year. You know, it's hard to get a grasp around politics in the 70s. Because, you know, if you just look at an electoral map of 76, let's say, uh, it makes no sense for the kind of current electoral map. I mean, it's a moment where a lot of things are happening. People are switching parties. It's the post-civil rights moment, you know, where African-Americans are joining the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is slowly becoming the party of the white man. And so you have a lot of like really shifting politics. There. But there is a broader sort of anti-establishment politics at that moment. It just helps Jimmy Carter get elected. Yes, but it also helps a guy like Orrin Hatch get elected. And I think that one of the things we have to understand here is that, you know, the states today that are these incredibly conservative states, the most pro-Trump states, especially in the American West, were states that actually were these really complex places at that moment in time. So if you're a state such as Idaho, you know, it was, yeah, it was pretty conservative then in some ways, but it was also electing these really incredible liberal politicians for decades, such as Frank Church or Cecil Andrus. And Utah is the same way. Frank Moss is a very, very solid liberal senator on a lot of issues. He was a pretty longtime, you know, Republican, excuse me, Democratic force in that state. And, you know, Mormons, the Mormon church has always been pretty anti-state and, and pretty skeptical of, of state power, but they were electing a guy like Frank Moss repeatedly. And Hatch starts this you know, Hail Mary campaign that seems to be going nowhere, but, you know, and he using this rhetoric that we would see be very comfortable with today in the Donald Trump era, you know, drain the swamp kind of thing. And, and he's able to tap into a couple of, of key figures um, in the rise of the right that matter a lot in Utah. 
One is the head of the, the president of BYU, uh, Brigham Young University, who is an extremist uh, right winger. And the second is Ronald Reagan, who is a rising power in the Republican Party, had nearly won uh, the nomination against Gerald Ford in 76, of course, will win in 80. And Reagan, out of nowhere, really endorses Orrin Hatch. And this combination of a growing politicization of the Mormon church and the rise of Ronald Reagan allows this far-right politician, or Orrin Hatch, to use a combination of a sort of family values rhetoric with a sort of drain the swamp rhetoric, and he pulls off a huge upset. He pulls off a huge upset of, of Frank Moss, and, and Utah politics are never the same. Well, just to connect a quick dot here, for people who subscribe to Beyond Politics, and if you haven't yet, I hope you will, we did an interview with Sasha Eisenberg, the author, who wrote the engagement, a 25-year history of the evolution of same-sex marriage in America. It was absolutely fascinating. And one of the things that emerges from that book is the Mormon church, as it became increasingly politicized and conservative and right-wing and most importantly, activist, actually created same-sex marriage in America. This entire issue was dormant and considered fringe until the Mormon church decided to pick a fight on it that it ultimately set itself up for losing. So it is kind of out of this ferment that Orrin Hatch arises. And it just, it, it's, it's a very interesting connection that then comes back to, to play a role in the politics of the 2000s and the 2010s. But just resuming the, the Orrin Hatch story for a moment. So he gets into Washington and he sort of makes his conservative bones by picking up an issue that was much more prominent at the time. I mean, decades ago, up to a third of Americans were members of labor unions and labor union issues were really important. Now it's, it's about 10%. So it's, it's, it's a much diminished issue in America. But at the time, labor issues and labor reform were really front and center, especially for Republicans who were still very much the party of big business. And so Orrin Hatch, chose, in your words, to be a pit bull against labor reform during the Carter administration. He came and he is responsible for killing labor reform using the filibuster. I'd never heard this before. What happened? Uh, you know, <clears throat> the American labor movement had struggled for, for a long time, you know, to repeal the worst parts of the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, which was an anti-union bill that created the so-called right to work states. And, you know, force the communists out of the labor movement and put a whole lot of restrictions um, on the labor movement that really made a lot of what allowed the labor movement to succeed in the 30s and first half of the 40s illegal. And so every time Democrats would sort of have a large in, in Congress, there's just been a, these attempts at labor law reform, and they always have failed. So 1966, for instance, you know, under Lyndon Johnson, it fails, right? In 2009, the Employee Free Choice Act under Obama, it failed. And it came really close to passing in, in the late 70s. Democrats controlled. And there was, you know, and that Democratic caucus was still pretty liberal um, on a lot of labor issues. And so there's a pretty significant support for, for repealing some of the worst parts of Taft-Hartley and for other kinds of, of economic reforms and labor law reforms that could have made a big difference in sort of reviving the labor movement in America. And, you know, today the filibuster is this horrible tool that the Republican Party has weaponized to stop any legislation from passing it on so that, you know, you effectively need a supermajority of 60 votes 
to pass anything. So hardly anything happens in Washington. In, in the past, you know, that, that's existed since the 19th century, despite what Republicans say, you know, there's nothing constitutional about it per se. It's just a, it's just a, a, a form, you know, it's just a, a, a Senate tradition. It's an invention but, of Aaron Burr of all things. Yeah, right, right. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. So, but the bigger point here is that for most of, of its history, really up until the last 15 years, it was really been used for two major things to stop civil rights legislation and to stop labor legislation. And, you know, in 1966, Everett Dirksen of Illinois uses it to stop this law that was going to repeal the worst of Taft-Hartley. Orrin Hatch does the same thing in the 70s. There are 59 votes in the Senate for labor law reform. 59. It needed one more vote. And if if it wasn't for the, the, at the time, unusual use of the filibuster, it would have passed. But Orrin Hatch makes it his top priority to support the business lobby. He calls, when he arrives in Washington, he calls the business lobby, quote, a bunch of gutless wonders, right? That he thinks they're a bunch of wimps who are not taking on unions. He's going to be the lead taking on those unions. And his determination to use the filibuster stops labor law reform and really helps lay the groundwork for the continued decline of labor unions in the 40 years since. And this is where, again, just to kind of bring it full circle to where we started off this show, I think the kind of writing you do really does a service. I know it's offset and probably a little trite at this point to say people who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it, but it really is helpful to understand the antecedents to what we are living through politically now. There's been so much focus on some of the the machinations around unionization, especially for Amazon workers, right? And there was the the, the instance in Alabama where they couldn't get it together. But now, recently, in, in, in the last few weeks and months, there have been successful efforts to unionize Amazon workers. And there, there are successful efforts going on for, for Starbucks employees. And this is part of a long, long simmering discussion in the labor movement about how to revitalize, how to rethink what it is that unions do, how to make them relevant. Again, if, you, if you're a subscriber to these shows, I did a whole episode on this with an expert from the Center for American Progress on the labor movement. And by the way, being in a labor union has massive benefits for people. It's, it's been closely studied. You're much, much better off if you are able to collectively bargain. So why is it so hard to organize? Why has the labor movement been throttled, why has it become such a a boogeyman for the right, and successfully so, so that you have all these right-to-work states now? Well, you can find the seeds of all of that in the handiwork of Orrin Hatch. That's why a clear-eyed understanding of this kind of history is so important, but I don't need to say that to a historian. One of the threads here that I think we really need to follow is Orrin Hatch did for the supplement industry, the, the kind of what's, what's loosely called the generic health industry. So you, you devote a little bit of space in your article, Eric, to, to this kind of troubled history. He passed the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994. Let's, let, me, let me just pop it over to you. That sounds okay. Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. That, that seems seems pretty generic to, uh, to to hit it on the nose. What was up with that, and why is it so troubling? 
Okay, so a little bit of context here. The Mormon church has a fairly long history of alternative medicine and in a kind of a distrust of traditional medicine, you know, and I grew up in a town in Oregon that had a very large Mormon population. And uh, there was a local doctor there who, you know, I knew his kids, they were in school with me, who had his license revoked because he was, he was, you know, uh, prescribing all of these quack medicines and, you know, that were hurting people. And, 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 and so, you know, this is this kind of, of, of world in which Warren Hash came out of this, 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 this desire for alternative medicine that, that was very popular in Mormon households. And, you know, of course, you know, the Pure Food and Drug Act passed in 1906, you know, served as a pretty pioneering reform that actually created accountability in what people put into their bodies, right? That before this, you know, you, this is the world of patent medicines. Uh, this was the world of, you know, opioids, you know, being available over the counter at pharmacies and, and stores and things like this. It was an era where people were, you know, basically poisoning themselves with things that were called medicine. And the FD, you know, creates a, a world in which there is accountability and there is testing and, and all of this stuff, right? Of course, a lot of these supplements are uh, totally bogus, right? They don't do anything. They're even harmful. And this always offended a Mormon church that was, you know, pretty open to alternative kinds of medicine. And so Hatch is able to you know, using a combination of, of the kind of growing desire of alternative medicine in much of the American public that comes out of the 1970s, plus a very pro-business um, mentality, right, um, talking about the free market and things, uh, to create this Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, which opens the door for all of the ridiculous supplements and things like this today that are poorly tested, that can, you know, usually do nothing to help somebody, but can be quite negative. You know, Michael Hiltzik, when, when, when Warren Hatch retired, Michael Hiltzik in the LA Times uh, wrote a long piece about this law, and he called, he, he said that, quote, his deadliest law will live on. And just as an example, you know, a supplement shortly after that, that Hatch, you know, supported in Hawaii sent 47 people to the hospital with liver problems. Three people had to have liver transplants and one person died before it was pulled off the market. And this is the kind of thing that Orrin Hatch created. And then on top of it, his own son was a, a lobbyist in the supplement. His two of his three largest campaign donors in 2010 were Herbalife. Uh, and Zengo LLC, which is a supplement marketing firm. And so Hatch was basically a, a bought and sold man of this supplement industry that is uh, quite strong today. You know, if you listen to like uh, workout podcasts, for instance, like my wife likes to do, there's all kinds of stuff like that on there. And, and, and a lot of the stuff's unsafe. And, and Warren Hatch is a big reason why, you know, this unsafe stuff is on the market. Well, to echo the all the president's men famous line, it is worth following the money and it, it's it's so interesting to me that thanks to this act the supplements industry grew from nine billion dollars in 1994 to more than 50 billion dollars today and in utah alone it's worth more than seven billion dollars and it's it's just it's interesting to me that this flies in the face of basically the singular achievement of american government in the 20th century the the author stephen johnson wrote a book called extra life that points out that human beings in rich Western countries, at least, have gained double life expectancy over the last century or so. Why? Well, it's because of a number of things, but a lot of it has to do with government public health intervention and government regulation of 
all kinds of, of quack things that we put into our bodies or dangerous things that we put into our bodies. The, the ability of the FDA to regulate these things and to take a look at them before the fact, not just after the fact when it's like, huh, a lot of people are getting sick and dying. Maybe people shouldn't be ingesting this stuff. That is one of the pieces of the puzzle. And one of the reasons why, again, we all live twice as long as we used to. And so it's just, it is interesting to me that, that this is one of his major legacies is sort of unwinding a lot of that progress. Well, and, and, and think about it in terms of COVID, right? That that you know you you have an incredibly safe and effective vaccine that's developed in record time. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about it. Using new technologies that have a high likelihood of being applicable to other other diseases um, that we're going to be able to vaccinate for pretty quickly. And this kind of anti-health conspiracy mongering fake medicine world has undermined the entire the entire project, right? And yeah, there there are people who are you know both on the left, if you want to say that, and the right who believe this stuff. But this kind of world of alternative medicine that Hatch went so far to create, you know, has gone so far in making the, the pandemic linger on about not getting the kind of vaccines in arms that's necessary, about not making it a global priority to get vaccines in arms. I mean, this, this you know, and the kind of, you know, the, the, the horse paste and the, you know, the hydro, as Donald Trump liked to point out, all of these ridiculous, med, you know, medicinal conspiracies that go mainstream because it's now pretty mainstream in the Republican Party to promote you know, alternative medicines to own the libs, even though it kills their own, their own people. And so, you know, it, it, Warren Ash is part of the problem in our total inability to get a handle on the pandemic. And Utah remains a, you know, in Idaho as well, which is the second highest Mormon state in terms of population in the country, among our lowest uh, states in terms of uh, vaccination rates. Right. And of course, the other connection point you just mentioned is the connection between right-wing politics and this alternative medicine nexus, you see it in Alex Jones. You see it in Joe Rogan. I mean, I, I know that Alex Jones's companies have just gone bankrupt, but you know his show, which was nominally peddling right-wing politics, was really, from a financial standpoint, peddling alternative, I, I'm air quoting here, alternative, quack medicines, his own like you know brand of survival products and medicines and supplements. Joe Rogan's podcast, which I mean, Joe Rogan's an entertaining guy, but like it's nominally peddling his own brand of commentary and libertarianism and whatever else is basically from an economic standpoint, peddling supplements, mushroom teas, and all of this other stuff. Where are the roots of all of this? No pun intended. Orrin Hatch and his law and the supplement industry and him being a wholly owned subsidiary of that whole world. It's just, again, a fascinating antecedent to the things we're seeing today. I want to talk about another antecedent here. You, in the title of your editorial board article, you call him, well, actually, disclaimer here, we don't necessarily come up with our own titles. John Storr, if you're listening to this, you're an awesome editor. We love the titles that you come up with. I'm bad at coming up with titles, so I appreciate when you come up with them. So, Eric, I don't know if you're actually responsible for this, but in the title of your article, you call Orrin Hatch the father of judicial extremism. Why? That was definitely John and not me. I'm also not, <laughs> right. very, I'm also not very good uh, at this stuff. But, you know, so a, a couple things about this, though. So first of all, Orrin Hatch really, really, really wanted to be on the Supreme Court. Like, that was his ultimate dream. He wanted to be on the Supreme Court. 
And that really wasn't possible because there was some sketchy financial stuff in his background in terms of fundraising and, and, and this sort of thing, not to mention the, the supplement industry and all of that. So that was never possible for him. But Orrin Hatch did it spent a great amount of energy to move the judiciary to the far right. He was a co-founder of the Federalist Society, which as probably most of your listeners know, but maybe not all, is the far-right extreme judicial network that basically to get a judicial nomination from a Republican president that you now need the endorsement of. He was a huge supporter of Robert Bork's nomination. He was a hitman against Anita Hill in the Clarence Thomas hearings, claiming bizarrely that she stole her sexual harassment allegations from The Exorcist. Uh, then he read The weird. Exorcist during the hearing. That that was that was really like loopy, right? Yes, yeah. And you know, he he was a, a huge supporter of the nomination of Jay Bybee, who had written the Bush torture memos uh, to the Ninth Circuit Court. And, you know, and, and it was the kind of thing where, again, he's operating within the politics of a given moment, right? So he's friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, let's face it, had very questionable taste in friends, you know, being also friends with Antonin Scalia and these other, these other people, right? And so when, the, when Bill Clinton nominates Ginsburg, Hatch, because he's a personal friend of hers, actually supports her for the court, right? Because in the 90s, this was still a moment in which Republicans were largely expected to support a Democrat on the Supreme Court when it was their turn, and Democrats largely supported a Republican on the Supreme Court, right? This, this, this extreme partisanship that we saw, you know, in the in the Brown-Jackson hearings, level of just unprecedented grossness and, and you know, these, these, these horrible accusations that are patently untrue is a fairly new thing okay so hatch is moving with the times right and he's pushing it to the right so as an example hatch had once said merrick garland would be quote a consensus nominee for the supreme court like if obama named merrick garland nobody would oppose this so then obama does name merrick garland in 2016 does Orrin hatch support merrick garland of course not Right. That it made sense when Hatch, when it was a moment where, you know, Hatch was trying to kind of lobby Obama to nominate this really quite moderate figure for the court, hoping that he wouldn't name somebody far to the left. But when the rubber meets the road, the conditions are different. Hatch is right there with Mitch McConnell to assure that no vote will ever take place from Eric Garland. And he becomes and really leads the way on this growing extremism in the Senate toward handling judiciary nominations. Right. I think that's that's what I'd like to pick up on here is that to some extent he's driving the bus and to some extent he's a passenger. And it's it's interesting to contrast his 90s with his 2010s, because you you do see a microcosm of as you alluded to a moment ago at the top of the show, sort of what was permissible, what was necessary to operate within the Republican Party. So on the one hand, in the 90s, you have this very interesting set of dots that you could connect. The Americans with Disabilities Act that he helped to champion, the Children's Health Insurance Program, which, by the way, was one of the things that Hillary Clinton ran on when she was running for president in 2016 as a major accomplishment. And, you know, being part of the move to put health warnings on cigarettes. Not to mention, he personally championed Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
and and lobbied for her with President Bill Clinton. These are bona fide things that I think most Democrats would say, that's good, good on you, man. And as you pointed out a moment ago, there was space within the Republican Party to do that. But then in the 2010s, the worm turns and you see this kind of, this kind of, it's, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is, this is him evolving with the times or if it's just revealing of what his true nature is. But when he's up for reelection in 2012, he faces a Tea Party challenger. He saw the fate of other Republican senators, including in his own state with, with the ascension of Mike Lee, who did not tack to the right to, to try and outflank Tea Party challengers. And so he all of a sudden becomes an absolute stone wall against everything President Obama wanted to do. And, you know, you point out that he goes in his assessment of how of how right wing he is. He goes in the assessment of, of Freedom Works from having a 25 percent rating up to an 88 percent rating because he tacks so hard to the right. So with that contrast kind of laid in front of you, who's the real Orrin Hatch? Is it kind of this 1990s version who has some some mixed bipartisan accomplishments or is it this 2010s version who tax hard to the right, makes sure that he cannot get beaten out on the right by the Tea Party, and then becomes a major supporter of Donald Trump's? Well, I mean, it's more the 2010s is what Orrin Hatch really always was. I mean, I think that you have to place, you know, it's very easy, almost an emotional, an emotional support thing among liberals to sort of go back to the 90s or the 80s and point out these sort of bipartisan things to kind of remind ourselves that things weren't always this way. But that often, you know, that, that kind of hazy nostalgia, first of all, ignores the fact that Orrin Hatch was one of the most right-wing members of the Senate for his entire career, right? That, that you know, going all the way back to 77 when he enters in, when he enters into the Senate, you know, he is, a, you know, he is a harbinger of what is to come, right? He is in a gold, he's in the Barry Goldwater a camp, he is, you know, he's supported by by Reagan. He's supported by again the president of BYU, who is, you know, so right wing that he that he'll fire economics professors who teach Keynesianism. So Hatch had always been a hard right guy. In the context of that time, though, understand the Republican Party and the Republican voters were not per se all always that conservative, right? That in this kind of transitional, these transitional decades that where people are switching parties and the parties are becoming more ideologically consistent, there's a lot of room and even necessity, you know, especially if you have, you know, higher ambitions as Hatch did, you know, to to, to have some kind of bipartisan credentials, because that is going to play well, because there are still a good number of liberal Republican voters who are out there, even in places such as Utah, right? The Frank Moss voters still exist. You know, some of them have switched to Orrin Hatch and they will continue to, but it takes time for the Republican electorate to become the kind of extremist far right group that it is in the the present. Hatch is moving with that. He was always on the far right of the party, but as the far right continues to change, he will more embrace, I think, his true positions. And and note as well, right, that when, when, when Mayor Garland is up for the court in 2016, Hatch already knows that he's not going to run for the Senate again in 2018, right? He knows that he's not going to. So he could have 
without any electoral consequence, stepped up and said, you know what, I am supporting Merrick Garland. And he doesn't do that. Mm. And he and that's entirely his choice. There's no electoral consequence for him at this moment in time. It, it, that's the true, that's the true Orrin Hatch. Well, that's interesting. I, I mean, it does kind of, it does kind of suggest that ultimately when you look back at his origin story and his first race and sort of how he then subsequently positioned himself, his not very successful run for president, that what you see here is someone who is a bit of a political survivor, a bit of a political opportunist who at his core is very right wing, but is able to adapt himself. Now, I'm not saying that some of his bipartisan achievements were all performative, were all cravenly political. They may have well been part of his his genuine outlook on, on the world, but when push comes to shove, and I think your last point is, is really a good one, when push comes to shove, when he had the opportunity to act on principle, he kind of went with his, the party push and the sort of the Trumpian instincts. And that actually does bring us to sort of this final political chapter for him, which is he became a big supporter of Donald Trump. Now, look, lots of people supported Donald Trump. Some of them had the grace to later disavow that, apologize, turn over a new leaf, but he never seemed to find that. He, he seemed to go with him all the way. And despite the sort of the moral rectitude of the Mormon church that they, that they project, even after the Access Hollywood tape, he sort of forgave Trump and, and went with him and went with his partisan instinct. Yeah, you know, I, I was it was very interesting. I when when Trump got the nomination and and I was really curious to see, you know, how Donald Trump would play in the West. I mean, I'm from the West. I, I study Western politics. I, I'm writing a book on the contemporary Pacific Northwest and, and it's sort of transformation of politics. These are things I follow pretty closely. And, you know, knowing that the West has very, you know, large Mormon populations, not only in Utah, but in Idaho, in Arizona. Uh, and to some extent in Oregon, Washington and, and Wyoming, for sure. You know, I was really curious with this style of conservatism play in a place like Utah, right? And, you know, and, and because it, it's not for, you know, for the Mormon church, it's not as if their discussion of values is entirely hypocritical. I mean, there are, you know, there is a lot of sort of community building activities and things like that and support of the, the poor members of the community and, and this sort of thing, right? Things that are pretty antithetical to the kind of guy Donald Trump was. And, you know, you saw this in Utah that, you know, Evan McMullen ran this independent campaign and he gets, you know, some percentage of the, of the vote in 2016 um, because there are some Mormons um, who just can't stomach the idea of a Donald Trump. Um, but the reality is, is that it became very easy for Orrin Hatch and for most of the Mormon church to basically embrace Donald Trump. I mean, sure, there's the Access Hollywood tape, right? Sure, there's all this stuff that might be seen as completely, you know, disconnected from anything that is part of, of the Mormon faith. But in the end, the reality is, is that the is that the Mormon church had, had moved so far to the right that it becomes fairly easy for not only for Mormons, but for evangelicals as well to create biblical justifications um, for somebody like Donald Trump, you know, saying, for instance, uh, that, you know, look like, the, you know, these, you know, King Solomon had affairs too, right, in the Bible. So Donald Trump is a flawed figure, but we're going to follow him because he's leading us, you know, into this promised land. And Orrin Hatch was right there with all of this, that, you know, sure, 
sure the Access Hollywood tape was bad, but, you know, compared to Hillary Clinton as president, oh my God, you know, un, un, impossible to even make such a comparison. And so Hatch, all the way, uh, never separates himself at all from Trump, and eventually Trump presents him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. First of all, I want to endorse your overall point about the Mormon church. Some Mormon political leaders have found a way to use the teachings of the church to break with their political party or to inform more compassionate approaches to government. And Mitt Romney, for all of his flaws, is one of those people who has, on the basis in part of his faith, broken with Donald Trump at times and had a little bit more political courage in ways that Orrin Hatch really never did, or at least he never did once the political environment in America made it no longer advantageous to have any separation or or any move to the middle. He's just someone who, down the line, once the worm turned in, in politics in America, he went with sort of the survivor's instinct that he showed in his very first political race. He knew what it took at the beginning. He had to tack hard to the right. He had to get on board with Ronald Reagan and the Reagan agenda. And in the latter half of his career, that's where he found himself again. And that's what it, it took to make it in the Republican Party and to beat back the Tea Party. And he got on board with never getting outflanked on the right. And ultimately, he stayed on board with Donald Trump. And you have to, you have to consider that in terms of his whole political legacy. Look, in the final analysis, he unquestionably did some things that were bipartisan achievements that were good, that were really good. There were also a number of things that he authored that are bad and that are still with us and we're still living through. And it's just a much more nuanced, textured understanding that we now have of Orrin Hatch. Thanks to you, Eric Loomis. So I really appreciate you bringing it to us. Hey, you bet. I was, it was a real honor to be here. <laughs>